men. First Samuel chapter seven, it says, then the men of Kiriath Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar, his son, to keep the ark of the Lord. So it was that the ark remained at Kiriath Jerim or Kiriath Yerim a long time. It was there 20 years and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, if you return to the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroths from among you and prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the children of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroths. And served the Lord only. And Samuel said, gather all Israel to Mitzpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered together at Mitzpah, drew water and poured it out before the Lord. And they fasted that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel at Mitzpah. Now, when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel had gathered together at Mitzvah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. So the children of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord, our God, for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. And Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Then Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel and the Lord answered him. Now, as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. And the men of Israel went out of Mitzvah and pursued the Philistines and drove them back as far as below beth Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mitzvah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, or we might say Ebenezer, like Ebenezer Scrooge, saying, thus far the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued. And they did not come any more into the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. Then the cities which the Philistine had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel recovered its territory from the hands of the Philistines. And there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He went from year to year on a circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mitzpah, and judged Israel in all those places. But he always returned to Ramah, for his home was there. There he judged Israel, and there he built an altar to the Lord. You know, when we were singing earlier, you're the air that I breathe. We're crying out to the Lord. I used to believe that all Christians wanted to live a victorious life. But I've been a Christian now for 35 years. And after 35 years of problems and trials and temptations and tests and failures and successes, I've come to the realization that for some, for reasons that I don't quite comprehend, for some, they want to remain in bondage. They want to remain in depression. They want to remain in fear. They want to remain in discouragement. They want to remain in oppression and subjugation, addiction, slavery. For, for reasons that I don't necessarily comprehend, there are people who live with one foot in the realm of their fear, their problems, their pain, their sin, their addiction, and the other foot they want 
hope. They want forgiveness. They want help. The worst emotion that can grip a human heart is to live in constant fear, constant discouragement, constant bondage, constant slavery, constant addiction. And you've got to understand something, that even though the children of Israel had recovered the ark of God, the people of Israel were discouraged and downtrodden and defeated. The people of Israel felt cut off, separated, abandoned by God, in bondage. And there came a point where they were sick of it. They were sick of the emptiness. They were sick of the loneliness. They were sick of the darkness. They were sick of the fear. They were completely sick of it. I've come to the realization that you will never change until you're willing to change. There has to come a dividing line. There has to come a line in the sand where you basically say, I'm all in or I'm all out. You see, I grew up in a world where I lived in constant realization that I'm all in or I'm all out. If I'm a sinner, guess what? I'm in sin. You know, there's a reason why I was voted most likely to go to hell in high school. It was because when I'm all in, I'm all in. There is no fear. There's no prohibition. There's no boundaries. There's no lines that I'm not willing to cross. But when I became a Christian, when I gave my heart to the Lord Jesus Christ, when I turned from my sin and I turned to the Savior, I'm either all in or I'm all out. Now, that doesn't mean that there haven't been periods of time of disobedience and disappointment. But guess what? Willingness alone will never result in permanent change. Change requires more than just a willingness to be all in. There has to be a recognition of sin and repentance from sin and then a willingness to turn to the Lord with all of your heart. You know, the book of Judges records this repetitive cycle. In Judges chapter 2, verses 10 through 19, if you, if you have an opportunity, go there and read it sometime. We have a kind of a summary of the whole book. In the book of Judges, the cycle goes like this. God blesses. The people disobey. God chastens the people. They get sick of their sin and then they repent. And then they're delivered. Blessing, disobedience, discipline, repentance, deliverance. Does that sound familiar to you? Blessing, disobedience, chastening, repentance, deliverance. It becomes a type and a picture, if you will, of the life of the individual and the nation. Warren Wiersbe writes, and I quote, Judges is the book of incomplete victory. It's a book of failure on the part of God's people to trust His Word and claim His power, unquote. I like that. Because trusting God's Word and claiming God's power, listen carefully, breaks the cycle of incomplete victory and provides long-lasting deliverance. I need to help you understand that in this chapter, in this chapter, we see not simply a break in the action, but a renewal of a covenant that results in a, in, in a generation being freed from bondage. Look carefully again. It begins with confession and commitment. Look at verse 1. Then the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and they took the Ark of the Lord. That's the Ark of the Covenant. And they brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated Eleazar, his son, to keep the Ark of the Lord. Now you'll remember, remember, remember. This is the Ark that created so much havoc among the Philistine peoples. 
hemorrhoids, tumors inside and out. It's like it was like sickness and radiation poisoning. And so they don't they don't bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Shiloh, but rather they keep it there with Abinadab and they consecrate Eleazar. Now, remember, the word consecrated means to officially set apart. Consecration meant that you publicly and personally are given a task to do. So for this particular person, Eleazar, he had the special charge to keep the Ark of the Lord. And that was his full time job. Now, again, if you're wondering, the Ark of the Lord was probably just a little bit bigger than that speaker box that's in the front of the stage. Or if you took two agape boxes and you jammed them together, you'd get the size of the Ark of of the Covenant. Now, imagine that's your full time job. It's your full time job day in and day out to take care of a box. And what do you do with this box? What do you say to the box? How do you treat the box? How do you minister to the box? How do you care for the box? Now, remember, the Ark of the Covenant is that picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember what the Ark is. It represents the presence of God among the people of God. And so it was that the ark remained in Kiriath Jerim a long time. It was there 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. They're crying out to God. As a matter of fact, before I get to the crying out to God, I want to address this issue of why didn't they return the ark to Shiloh? Now, some Bible scholars think that the reason why is because the Philistines, even though the ark had been returned, they were still under bondage. They were still under slavery. They were still under oppression by the Philistines. And it could very well be that the city of Shiloh was destroyed by the Philistines. There seems to be several clues that are given to us. Shiloh is never mentioned again as the worship center in either First or Second Samuel. The center of Samuel's ministry becomes Ramah after the Philistine defeat in verse 17. And the very fact that the ark isn't returned and the book of Psalms and the book of Jeremiah mentioned the destruction of this of the sanctuary at Shiloh. As a matter of fact, I've already shared with you in earlier studies, Psalm 7860, it says so that he forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh, the tent he had placed among men. In other words, that when the ark was seized. The glory of God departed and the glory of God doesn't return until the rededication of 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 the tabernacle, if you will, by the new temple that's built by Solomon. And then in Jeremiah, chapter seven, verse 12, it says, but go now to my place, which was in Shiloh, where I set my name at the first and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. And now because you've done all these works, says the Lord, and I spoke to you rising up early and speaking, but you didn't hear. And I called you, but you didn't answer. Therefore, I will do to the house which is called by my name in which you trust and to this place which I gave to you and your fathers as I have done in Shiloh. In other words, the point of Jeremiah's message is I was there and I called out to you and you weren't there. I showed up, but you didn't show up. So some scholars have pointed out that um, it's possible that Shiloh was destroyed, that the furniture in the tabernacle was taken and hidden away, it's possible that the tabernacle may may have somehow escaped destruction. We don't know. The NIV study Bible holds the position that it could be that the tabernacle, in fact, escaped destruction because the tabernacle is moved to Nob in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 through 9. And then in the days of David and Solomon, the tabernacle moves to the city called Gibeon in 1 Chronicles chapter 16 and 1 Chronicles chapter 21 and uh, in 2 Chronicles chapter 1. There is the possibility, like I said, that part of the furnishings were hidden 
before the Philistine invasion, kept someplace for safekeeping. But guess what? The tabernacle is there. The place to sacrifice is not there. The presence of God, at least the symbol of the presence of God is there. But it feels like he's not there. Have you ever been in that situation? Where you go to church or you open the Bible and there is your Bible and there is the church and there is the cross and there is the stained glass. And all around you are the symbols of Christianity, but it feels like God is nowhere to be found. And so you cry out. And you say, God, where are you? I need you. And that's what it says. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Now, what do you suppose that means? I've already told you that the fundamental meaning of the word lament means to cry out. Perfect example, a baby in the middle of the night when they're hungry. They lament. They scream like Jeremiah the prophet and they cry and their head becomes a fountain and their eyes are filled with water. Now, what does a baby do? Baby continues to cry, doesn't it? Until you do exactly what needs to be done. So you feed the baby. So you change the baby. And remember, there's a reason why a baby cries, because they don't have a way to specifically articulate what's going on. Your four month old, your five month old baby can't go, excuse me, anyone out there? Feed me, change me, do what is necessary to make me happy. And that's the lamentation. I think it means to cry out, but it means more than to cry out. I think it means to cry out with the realization that the spiritual condition and the personal corruption and the economic ruin has been caused by their unwillingness to serve the Lord. It is their personal wickedness, their corporate idolatry and their cultural compromise. All of a sudden, they, they've come to the realization that all of the things that they thought would help them have not helped them. The job, the economy, the circumstances, their worldview, all of it has been taken away. And they realize that in part that the presence of God or the absence of God has something to do with the condition of their own heart. And so in verse three, it says, then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, if you return to the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the foreign gods and the Asherahs from among you and prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you from the hands of the Philistines. The prophet Samuel issues the people a challenge. And the challenge is to repent and to return to the Lord. By the way, how long do you suppose he gave this message? Remember, we were given a clue earlier in the text when it says that Eleazar kept the Ark of the Lord and the Ark of the Covenant remained in Kiriath-Jerim a long time. It was there. How long? Twenty years. See, you thought I was bad. Can you imagine I give you the same message every Wednesday, every Sunday? Repent of your sin and return to the Lord. Do you know there's a whole, you know, there's other things in the Bible. Can we talk about those other things in the Bible? Yeah, there's lots. To talk about in the Bible. But here's Samuel. With the same message. Day after day. Week after week. Month after month. 
year after year. You know what Samuel is doing? He's challenging the people to repent. He's challenging the people to return because they have a unique and a covenant-keeping God. It would appear that the Lord gave Samuel this singular message, and the theme is simple. Return. Repent of your sin. Return to the Lord. Commit to the Lord. You have a special relationship with the Lord. He loves you. Remember, he appeared to Abraham and he appeared to Isaac and Jacob. He preserved the people of Israel in in Egypt during the time of Joseph. Remember, the children of Israel cried out in Egypt and God sent a deliverer, Moses. And then he opened the door. He parted the Red Sea and the children of Israel left Egypt and went and wandered in the wilderness for 40 years because God made promise after promise. He made provision after provision. He gave chance after chance. And the same is true for the Christian, isn't it? You hear the message over and over again. You sing about it. You're exposed to it. You read about it in the Bible, how Jesus loves you, how he died on the cross for your sin. And for many of us, we lived a life where we knew the religious circumstances and we knew the story and we knew that Jesus Christ died on the cross. But for whatever reason, we came to the cross and we waved at the cross and we said, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. Thank you. And then you decided to live your life the way you wanted to live your life. You decided to entertain yourself and embrace your pleasure and reject the pain and minister to yourself. But some of you made the choice to come back to the cross. You made the choice to come back and you fully and you finally you realize that Jesus loves you and that he died on the cross for your sins. And you knelt down at that cross and you received the forgiveness and the hope, the redemption and the reconciliation that was there. And you were all in. And the life that you used to live. You were going to turn away from that life. Think about it for a moment. He's preaching the message. Put away your idols. Strip away the titles. Commit yourself wholeheartedly, unreservedly. Experience deliverance. And when he says, repent and return, and he says, put away the foreign gods. Remember, those were the Baals. Remember what Baal is. He is the god of the storm. He is the king of the Canaanite pantheon. Baal is the God that in the Canaanite circumstances, this is the God that they believed was responsible for the rain and responsible for the weather and responsible for the grain. He was responsible for the economy. And sensible people, knowledgeable people, people who understood the times, paid close attention to Baal. Because how else are we going to eat if we don't worship this God? And Ashtaroth was the fertility God. Azurah is a singular word that speaks of the fertility goddess. She was the goddess of sex and reproduction. Because there was nothing more important in the life of the individual but that you had a healthy family and that you had a healthy crop and that you had the ability to reproduce and that reproduction resulted in survival. But here was the deal. Around the cult of reproduction, temples sprang up. Temples that included priestesses and their job was to promote ritual sexual acts. Now, imagine, imagine you get to join a church where here's what you had to do. This was what was compelled in in this church. You had to have sex with the people in the church. Now, you can imagine when you make it 
theologically justifiable. Well, this is my religion. This is how I express my deeply felt spiritual thoughts. Guess what? A lot of people are going to participate in that kind of a religion. Pagans participated in this religion. And we have our own modern versions of the Baals and the fertility goddesses. It manifests itself in, in, an, in a greedy hunger to make money. It manifests itself in a sexualized society so that your life and your identity and your roles and your relationships are completely determined by your ability or inability to respond in that particular way. And so what Samuel is basically saying is renounce the things, renounce the things that are hindering your spiritual life and rededicate yourself to the service of the true and the living God. You have thought that money is what matters and you thought that sex is what matters. But guess what? These things are hindering your spiritual life. They're stunting your spiritual growth. And it may not seem like a big deal to you. You might be reading this particular passage of Scripture and you hear the words that Samuel says, repent of your sin, return to God, put away your idols. And, you know, what is it? A Why is it a big deal to abandon a statue? You've got to understand something for them to put away their bales and for them to put away the Ashtaroth meant that they had to abandon what seemed fashionable and reasonable and dependable and agreeable and culturally sensible. You may not even be able to comprehend, but to go against the cultural tide and come to the conclusion that money isn't all that matters and sex isn't all that matters. People thought you were insane. It meant to turn away from the sensual to the stark and the sober. Because the idea of worshiping Jehovah was unattractive. Didn't that seem that way to you before you became a Christian? Hey, what are you? I'm a Christian. Well, what do you do for fun? Go to church. Oh, hold me down. What else do you do for fun? Read the Bible. Okay, what else do you do for fun? Why, we pray and sing songs. Go to church, read the Bible, pray and sing songs? When I have video games? When I have World of Warcraft? When I have internet pornography? When I have a culture that removes the boundaries and the barriers and gives me the right to do whatever I want? Oh, I forgot to tell you. There's also... The forgiveness of sin and the absence of guilt and the fear is gone and the hope of heaven. What? Tell, tell me more. How do you get that? How, how do you experience that? Because the truth is, there will come a time when you will feed the fear and you will feed the anxiety and you will feed what is pleasurable and you will try to fill the emptiness and the wickedness and the stupidity and the circumstances and you keep trying to fill it and it never goes away and finally you get sick of it. You want to know if it's really true. If you can experience hope and love and forgiveness. And it says in verse four, so the children of Israel, look what they did. They put away the Baals and the Ashtoreths and they served the Lord only. 
First year, Samuel preaches. Second year, Samuel preaches. Tenth year, Samuel preaches. Fifteenth year, Samuel preaches. Twentieth year, Samuel preaches. Over and over and over and over and over and over again, he reminds them, you can turn from your sin. You can turn to a provision of hope. You can turn to life and love in Christ. And look what it says in verse 5. And Samuel said... Gather all Israel to Mitzvah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. Do you understand what's happening? Samuel calls on the people to gather. Think for just a moment. Here's what he's saying. I want you to repent. I want you to return to God. I want you to abandon your idols. And then I want you to go public. I heard today that our president canceled prayer day tomorrow, the National Day of Prayer. Now, I I also heard that he didn't really cancel the National Day of Prayer. The National Day of Prayer is still on, by the way. Are people allowed to pray all over the country? I mean, can the president actually cancel the day of prayer? He may observe the day of prayer differently. It's my understanding that, that, that his staff says, well, this president prays privately. That's the way he prays. He prays privately. Prayer is a matter of private. It's a private matter. And some of you may have grown up in circumstances where that's exactly what you were taught, that prayer is a matter of privacy. That you do what you do privately. Now, again, I'm not opposed to private prayer. But Samuel calls the people to go public. To repent publicly. To turn to the Lord publicly. To renounce their sin publicly. To demonstrate their willingness to serve the Lord publicly. And so in verse 6, look what it says. So they gathered together at Mitzpah. They drew water and they poured it out before the Lord. And they fasted that day. And they said there, we sinned against the Lord and Samuel judged the children of Israel at Mitzpah. Now, you've got to understand something that Mitzpah is this place right below the Judean wilderness. That's a high plateau on this high plateau. The plateau is surrounded by valleys and the children of Israel from the north Dan all the way to the south. They gather from every province and from every tribe and they gather together at Mitzpah and they cry out to the God, to the, to the Lord God. They gather together, they draw water and they pour it out to the Lord. Now, here's what you got to understand. The idea was to symbolize the fact that when you take water and you pour it into the ground, what happens to water that's poured out? It is absorbed into the ground, isn't it? How easy is it to take a bottle of water, pour it into the dirt, and then, then grab the water and put it back into the bottle? It's pretty difficult, isn't it? That's the idea. The water that's poured forth onto the ground can't be gathered again. It's a symbol. It's a sign. It's their way of saying there is no turning back. Remember, we as Christians, we sing a song, the cross before us, the world behind us. You know the rest. No turning back. No turning back. Do you realize when you get a tattoo, there's no turning back? Now, you can go through laser treatment. You can have your skin peeled away. It is a painful, horrible process. And I guess you can go and you can take the water and you can go to REI and you can buy a water filter and you can put the mud in a bucket and you can try and suck the water out of the mud and put it back into the bottle because you've decided to turn back. But the children of Israel are sick and tired of being enslaved. They're sick and tired of being in bondage to fear. They're sick and tired of allowing addictions to rule their life. They're sick 
and tired of misplaced priorities. They're sick and tired of living a life where their life isn't marked by joy and peace and forgiveness and hope and value and redemption. And so they decide that they're going to follow God and they're going to follow God forever. And the people fast. And the people pray. And look what happens. Samuel acts on behalf of the Lord. In other words, Samuel is serving in the function both as priest and both as prophet. But he's also serving in the role of a counselor. In other words, as the people fast, that means they deny themselves food in order to pray. Samuel acts on behalf of the people for those who are unsure of their standing before the Lord. Have I really repented? Have I really returned to the Lord? Am I consecrating and committing? Have I abandoned the Baals and the Asherahs? Is there some secret sin inside of my heart? Or is there some external sin that is still bringing me to a place of bondage where I still am struggling with all of these different issues? He stands in the place of, of counselor and priest and judge. So that if there is some issue of sin, if there's something that they're ignorant of and they need direction from God on what to do in their life, they come to Samuel. That's sort of my job. You know what? I repented of my sin. I turned from my sin. I I, I prayed the prayer to receive Jesus into my life. And I go to church and I read my Bible, but I'm still terrified. I'm still afraid. Because there are things in my life and there are circumstances of my life. And there was a lifestyle of bondage and slavery. And I'm not exactly sure that I'm over it. But look what it says in verse 7. Now, when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel had gathered together at Mitzvah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard about it, they were afraid of the Philistines. Wait, 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 wait. They've repented of their sin. They've turned to the Lord. They've abandoned their idols. They're going public with their love and loyalty to to the Lord God. But the slave drivers, the masters, the oppressors, when the children of Israel gather together at Mitzvah, the lords of the Philistines understand something that a united people, a forgiven people, a people who are dedicated to the Lord, their God, who are willing to surrender to the Lord, their God, who are willing to sacrifice their own pleasure in order to pursue the Lord God. Are they a threat? Let me ask you just a simple question. If there are a group of people who want to be free and they desire to be free and they're willing to make the sacrifice to be free, are they a threat to the master? Now, have the children of Israel gathered at Mitzvah to throw off the Philistine government? No. They're there to worship God. They're there to confess their sin and repent of their sin. They're there to offer sacrifices to God. They're not, they're not trying to throw off the Philistine masters, but that's exactly what the Philistine masters think. And they are afraid of the Philistines. You want to know why? Because they've been in, in bondage to the Philistines all of their life. 
The children of Israel faced an immediate threat from their former masters. And listen carefully, the Christian who decides to repent, the Christian who decides to repent and return to the Lord and throw off the idolatry, throw off the things that that kept them in bondage. Does it seem to happen on a very consistent basis that the moment that you decide to do what's right, the old sins come back and haunt you? And insist that they should still be a part of your life. That's exactly what's happening. Their sin, their secret sin, or their not so secret sin, the invisible things that held them in bondage, the visible things that held them in bondage, were still there. And you see, when you hear a message like this and you hear and you know that there's something in your life, there's something in your heart, there's something in your friendships and relationships, there's something in your life that doesn't belong in your life. And the Lord is asking you to abandon those things, to repent of your sin and to turn to the Lord and to go public and to go all the way. That you're sometimes immediately left with a test. As a matter of fact, there was an early church father named Augustine. Right after he received the Lord Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, he writes about it in his book called Confessions. And he was walking down the street and he sees his former mistress. This is his girlfriend that he lived with for years and years and years. And he turned and he began to walk away. But the woman who lived with him for years said, Augustine, Augustine, it's me, it's me. And Augustine started running away. And he says, yes, but it's not me anymore. I've changed. I'm a new man in Christ. I've reckoned myself dead to the former things. That's who I used to be. And that's what I used to do. And the person that you used to be and the things that you used to do will sometimes unexpectedly show up in your life and extend an invitation to you. To want to enjoy it again. Or want to be afraid of it again. The very essence of Christianity, the very essence of what it means to have a right relationship with God in Christ is that we have the victory. We were formally defeated, but we are victors and conquerors in Christ Jesus the Lord. It is Jesus who has forgiven you. It's Jesus who's saved you. It's Jesus who's given you the Holy Spirit inside of you. It's Jesus who's made a provision of hope and promise for you. It's Jesus who's gathered the, the, your, your family and friends, your brothers and sisters together to support you and encourage you. The children of Israel were preparing for worship, but they weren't preparing for war. You know, oppressive governments get suspicious when people gather in large numbers. Oppressive governments become afraid when people gather together and they want to exercise freedoms, freedoms of speech, freedoms of association, freedoms of religion. I got to tell you something. I'm on record. This is on tape. This is going to go out over the airwaves. I will not sacrifice my freedom of speech and I will not sacrifice my freedom of religion and I will not sacrifice my freedom of association to anyone for any reason. Too many people have fought too long and too hard and too many people have died so that we can speak to whom we want to speak to. We can pray to whomever we want to pray and we can associate with whomever we want to associate. We need to pray for our country. We need to pray for our leaders. For the Philistines, they would confront Israel in Israeli territory. 
It's the Philistine position that they're going to leave the Philistine territory and they're going to penetrate the Israeli territory. The children of Israel weren't prepared for an unprovoked attack by the Philistines. Because remember, they've only recently abandoned their wickedness. They've only recently turned from their sin. They've only recently turned to the Lord. Does this this sound familiar to you? Hey, look, I just prayed to receive Jesus. I don't know anything about the Bible. I'm new at the church. What am I supposed to do? Well, you know, there are people who think, does it make sense that I should be rewarded? I mean, look, I'm trying to do what's right. I'm not trying to do what's wrong. I'm trying to leave what's wrong. And I'm trying to do what's right. And then the devil shows up to test you and to tempt you. Is this how God rewards repentance? Well, yeah. When you embark on a course of getting right and staying right with God, expect difficulty and expect tribulation. Doesn't it make perfect sense to you that when you say, Lord, I want to turn from my sin and I want to turn to Jesus and I want to get rid of those things that I used to love and I want to go public, that you're tested. Okay, you prayed that prayer. Let's see if you really mean it. Let's see if that's what you really want. Are you truly, really sick and tired of the fear and the addiction and the wickedness and the estrangement from God? The difficulties serve a test. It's a reliability of this newfound dedication. And look what it says in verse 8. So the children of Israel say to Samuel, Don't cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that He may save us from the hand of the Philistines. I need to make an appointment with the pastor to talk about this. Do you know, I need you to, I need you to pray for me. Well, okay, what is it again I need to pray about? Well, I'm still struggling with this. And I'm still struggling with that. And all of those things that used to oppress me and bind me are coming back. Now, think about it. The children of Israel knew how ruthless the Philistines could be. The Philistines are a harsh group of people. They're the owners and were the slaves. And this is the way it's always been. So when you as a slave decide you're not going to be a slave anymore, sometimes the owners get a little bit upset. And in verse 9 it says, And Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Then then Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. I want you to understand what's happening there on the plateau of Mitzvah. The children of Israel have gathered on this plateau, and the Philistines are coming from every direction, and they're starting to ascend the plateaus in order to kill them. To break up the assembly. And Samuel takes a suckling lamb. This is a lamb that's a newborn lamb. It's still suckling on its mother's breasts. And he's offering it as a whole burnt offering. The thing about a suckling lamb is it is fragile and dependent. And a whole burnt offering in the, in, the, in the Hebrew tradition, when you would offer a whole burnt offering, it was a sign of total consecration, of total worship, of total passion, of total affection. Your passions, your affections, everything is now focused on this one thing and this one thing only. Now think about it for a moment. Here's how they're preparing for war. They're worshiping God. The way that they prepare is they cry out to the Lord and note what it says. The Lord answered them. The burnt offering was a testimony of wholehearted consecration, wholehearted worship, wholehearted devotion. 
And now it says in verse 10, as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, look what it says. The Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. Right when you wind up at church, right when you start that women's group or that men's group, right when you begin to actually get up in the morning and have a time of devotion, the moment that you open up your Bible, the moment that you start to pray on a regular basis, the moment that you go to church, the moment that you start to get plugged in and get attached and get connected, the Philistines start creeping up all around you to remind you Look what it says. But the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day, and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. You know what's interesting to me? How many people think that worship doesn't make sense as a reasonable defense? You don't understand. I have deep problems. Worship God. No, no, no. Have I made myself clear? I have deep psychological problems. I have deep-seated issues that I've struggled with my whole life. I have problems with guilt and fear. I have problems with acceptance. I have problems with this and I have problems with that. I know. Isn't it wonderful that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and that he rose from the dead for your justification and that your guilts can be forgiven and that your past can be forgiven? And that what you thought was important is no longer important as you embrace the Lord Jesus Christ and you experience peace and joy and hope and life and love and a future. Don't you understand that God is willing to supernaturally participate in your deliverance? Look what it says. The Lord thunders with a great thunder. What does that mean? I suspect that what happened is on the plain of Mitzvah, as the Philistines started to approach the children of Israel, as they're worshiping God, as they're praying to God, as they're crying out to God, as they're offering the burnt offering of consecration, of total worship and total devotion, hail starts raining down from heaven and starts wiping them out. And in their confusion, and in their confusion, they, the, the, the people of Philistines, under, they understand something. The Philistine threat is overcome by the Lord. In verse 11, and the men of Israel went out of Mitzvah and pursued the Philistines and drove them back as far as, as, as Beth Car. Understand something, we pray and we worship and we study like it all depends on God. But at some point, they turned their back and they went down Mitzvah and they decided that they were going to participate with God in the removal of the slave owners. Do you understand? You pray like it all depends on God. But then you work like it all depends on you. You get up in the morning and you have the devotion. You open your Bible. You participate in the study group. You have to understand something. Christianity isn't something that you do on Wednesdays and Sunday mornings. It's a lifestyle. I was watching the History Channel of the motorcycle people down in Colorado Springs, the Sons of Sin. And as I was watching this motorcycle gang, it occurred to me that they are more devoted. They are more committed than almost every single Christian that I know. They are willing to do for lies what you're not willing to do for the truth. They're willing to sacrifice. They're willing to get up in the morning. You know what? For a person who's involved in a motorcycle gang, when they get up in the morning, their patch is all that matters. They live for the patch. They go to bed at night and they think about that patch. Their life, their, their whole life is consumed with the motorcycle gang. And so for the person who's not ready to join the gang, 
for the person who's not ready to show the sacrifice and the courage that's necessary to participate in the gang, guess what? They're not allowed in the gang. It's not true in the church, is it? Anybody can come here. Anybody can show up for Bible study. The believer and the make-believer. But I need you to understand something. At this moment, at this moment in the history of Israel, in the past, God had used the Philistines to discipline the people of Israel. And now the people have been restored to God's favor. The enemies of Israel have now become the enemies of God because guess what? The children of Israel are right with God. That's what happened. When they repented of their sin and when they returned to the Lord and when they abandoned their idols and when they went public, when they made a public declaration of love and loyalty to the Lord. Guess what? God's friends now become your friends. And God's enemies now become your enemies. It says in verse 12, And Samuel took a stone and he set it up between Mitzvah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. Do you understand what's happening? Samuel is celebrating and commemorating the victory. We re- we've, re- we- we- we've walked away from our sin. We've repented of our sin. We've turned to the Savior. We've abandoned our idols. We've gone public. And we have overcome the enemy. We're living a life of victory. Oh, by the way, where Samuel sets up the stone of remembrance, Ebenezer, thus far the Lord has happened to us. The location is the site where the Philistines had completely routed the Israeli soldiers 20 years earlier. 20 years earlier, 50,000 Israeli soldiers fell in the ditches and were killed and the Ark of the Covenant was captured. But the place where they had suffered the greatest defeat now became the place where they, where they experienced the greatest victory. Did it ever occur to you that that place of emptiness and that place of loneliness and that place of wickedness and that place of bondage and that place of test and that place of temptation and that place of failure and that place of fear can become the very place where God will establish his victory in your heart? Because you were never meant to be a slave. Paul writes in the New Testament that it is for Jesus' sake that you've been set free. And Samuel calls the place Ebenezer. You know what it means? This is the place where God helped me. You remember the song that we sing? And here we raise our Ebenezer. And you're going, well, what's raising an Ebenezer mean? It's where you establish the memory That this is the place where God showed up and he delivered me. That's what it means. It means to mark the place of God's victory in your life. When people ask you about your life, what do you say to them? Do you remember when Joseph was asked by the Pharaoh, Hey, old timer, tell me a little bit about yourself. And and Jacob, excuse me, it's Jacob. The Pharaoh says to Jacob, tell me a little bit about yourself. And Jacob says, well, I've been on this earth 130 years. And it's been a hard life. And I still didn't live as long as my father or my grandfather. But when he was asked by his children and by Joseph, he talked about how he went to Bethel. And how when he was running for his life from his brother, that it was the place where God showed up in his life. But a ladder came down from heaven and angels came down from heaven. When you tell the story of your life, do you tell the story about how God changed your life? 
How He showed up in your life. How He was there. And how your life used to be and how your life is. And look in verse 13. So the Philistines were subdued. And they didn't come anymore into the territory of Israel. Do you understand what's happening? During the whole ministry of Samuel, they are gone and they are gone forever. Now, is there going to be a period of pain, disobedience, bondage in the future for Israel? Yes, but guess what? When they won, they won big that day. And it says, and the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. Then the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel recovered its territory from the hands of the Philistines. Also, there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. You see, this is part of the benefits of getting right with God. Everything that was taken by the devil gets restored. Well, This is gone, and this is gone, and this is gone. I know. And guess what? God shows up, and this is back, and this is back, and this is back. And look what it says. And also there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. Do you know what that means? The Amorites were Israel's southern neighbors. Here's the deal. When the Amorites saw the complete rout of the Philistines, when the Amorites saw that the Israeli people had turned from their sin and turned to the Lord and abandoned their idols and went public in their love and loyalty, devotion and worship and consecration, God showed up and it wasn't a good idea to mess with them. I know what some of your relatives are thinking because they thought the same thing about me. It's a fad. Last week it was witchcraft. This week it's Christianity. Next week it'll be pot and booze and girls once again. You know, 35 years later, my family is actually now beginning to believe that maybe I'm in it for the long haul. How about you? You see, when you come to the end of the chapter, it says, And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went from year to year on a circuit to Bethel and Gilgal and Mitzpah, and he judged Israel in all of those places. But he always returned to Ramah, for his home was there, and there he judged Israel, and he built an altar to the Lord. Twenty long years, Samuel gave the same message. Twenty long years. Twenty long years, he begged the people to turn from their sin. To turn to the Lord. To abandon their idols. But he almost in a singular fashion, transformed the heart of a nation. Have you noticed that the most effective ministers are those who are there for the long haul? I think about my pastor Chuck Smith and Skip Heitzig. I think of Greg Laurie. I think of my friends Raul Reese. I think of my pastor friends that I grew up with who have been in the ministry for 20 years, for 25 years, for 30 years, for 35 years, for for some of them now, 40 years. The most effective ministries like Chuck Swindoll and John MacArthur. These are the men who are at their church, not for two years and then they move on. These are the men who are there over and over and over again. To remind people to turn from their sin. To turn to the Lord. To abandon their idols. To do it publicly. And to be all in. We're going to have communion. Communion is one of those times that lasts a little bit longer than normal. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you just to take a moment. I know that many of you have to go. And if you have to go, you have to go. But if you can stay, we're going to sing a few songs. I'm going to hand out the elements of communion. And then the only thing that I ask is that we all have an opportunity to do it together. Remember what I said? There's a private time of devotion. 
And there's a public time of devotion. There's a time when you do it by yourself, and there's a time when we do it all together. And this is the time that we do it all together. That we declare our love and our loyalty to Jesus Christ corporately. But if for some reason you've never made that commitment, if for some reason you've lived a life of fear and emptiness and terrifying loneliness, and you needed to make a right relationship with God, but you never have. And you've heard the stories about Jesus. And you know them by heart about how He died on the cross for your sins and how He rose from the dead. But for whatever reason, you lived a life quite apart from God and quite apart from Jesus. But now God's calling you back. Now the Lord Jesus Christ is inviting you to stop running. Start living. You can do that too. And it's really simple. You repent of your sin. And you turn to the Lord. You make the willingness to abandon your idols and embrace the one true living God. That you embrace Jesus as the Messiah. That you believe that He did what you couldn't do, lived a perfect life, and He died on the cross for your sins, and He rose from the dead for your justification. And there's a huge promise that's given to you. That if you believe that, if you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you'll be saved. I think you can do it privately inside of your heart, but I also think that there comes a moment when you need to do it publicly. And you need to go on record that you'd like to do that. And while the worship team comes up and while we're handing out the elements of communion, if you'd like to come up here and make that public declaration of love and loyalty, I'd be more than happy to talk with you and pray with you while we're handing out the communion so you can participate with us. So I'm going to have the worship team come up. I'm going to pray right now. Heavenly Father, I do pray for that person who knows that it's time. That for whatever reason... They've wanted to keep their fear and they've wanted to keep their sin and they've wanted to keep their emptiness and they've wanted to keep their loneliness and they've wanted to keep their bondage. But now it's time, now it's time, now they know it's time to be free. And Lord, I pray that they would come forward and that they would experience freedom and hope. That Lord, by coming forward, they're indicating their willingness to abandon their sin and embrace Jesus. And to live a life, not of bondage, but of freedom. Not of emptiness, but fullness. And not of guilt, but of forgiveness. And not a future of judgment, but a future of hope. And Lord, I pray for Christians. Lord, I pray that they would renew that covenant and that they would wholly devote themselves in all that they say and all that they do to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in their life in Jesus name